big rocks and all that sort of thing. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Uh, welcome to a very special edition of the Mick Wall podcast. Um, as you'll know, I don't really do a lot of guests, um, but when I do have a guest on i like to make sure it's someone really special really special um sadly he couldn't make it so boom uh, boom (laughs) (laughs) now i'm delighted to welcome uh, as my very special guest the one and only stephen wilson welcome stephen well thank you for having me it's very good to be here of course you and i have had a lot of conversations over the last couple of years so this is just another in the series isn't it it is, it is. Um, uh, I'm sure most people that listen to this will be aware, but just in case, mm-hmm. um, Stephen and I started working together just over two years ago on what has become Stephen's book, Limited Edition of One, which came out in April this year. Yeah. Um, so I do want to ask you a, a little bit about that, but I, I was going to start by saying I think it's quite a remarkable year for you because... You've done two things that for many, many years you swore you would never do. Number one, Mm. the book. Yes. Uh, The the first time anybody ever spoke to me about the possibility of you perhaps doing a book or me perhaps writing a book about you was back in um, uh, Porcupine Tree Days. Mm. In fact, it was around that period when you did your final ever show in London at that time, finally, at that show. time, yeah, and I was yeah. at that show with the managing director of the publishing company, who was just the most tremendous PT fan and Stephen mm. Wilson fan. Mm. Um, uh, and yet, that's got to be what, 12, 13, 12 years ago. That was October two thousand ten. So right, yeah, so coming, nearly, getting on for twelve years ago now. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, but. What I was told then was that you weren't interested and then cut to several years later and early 2018, I I get a new agent and a new publisher and we go for lunch and they give me a wish list of three three things and you're number one. And uh, that's my phone dinging or your phone dinging. Is it? Do you want to turn that off? No, I'm all right. I'm all right. Um, it's It's not very professional, is it? On my part, I hasten to add, not yours. No, I'm a consummate professional. I know you are. the listeners. So, of course, it's my phone, isn't it? Yeah. (laughs) There's only one amateur in the room, and that's me. Anyway. Yeah. Um, And they they told me they had both actually been to see you a few years before. They'd had lunch with you or Mm. meetings with you. And you had been absolutely adamant that you did not want to do a book. You couldn't see how it would work. And so, just... uh, That's the other... That's the first thing you've done this year. And the other thing, of course the porcupine tree album which we will get to but firstly the book why were you so convinced that it wouldn't be a good idea i thought it would be boring you know i I, it's it wasn't that i didn't want to do a book um because of course you know 
there's a part of me the vanity of one of you know of being able to do a book definitely appealed to me i mean i would love to be a published you know writer and all that stuff that definitely appealed to the you know the vain side of me but i guess the main thing for me is that i was always thinking that if you're going to write an autobiography which is what was being proposed to me that it had to have that kind of traditional arc to it that almost every autobiography has the rise and fall you know that kind of thing the drugs the groupies the roadies and of course my story is the antithesis of that I mean it's basically a story about a music nerd that falls in love with making the idea of making records and commits their life to doing just that to levels of success that one would most kindly describe as you know cultdom rather than you know massive mainstream success and I guess I thought that there was no story uh, you know in there at least not in those terms and then the more I spoke to you and and the other guys you're talking about Matthew and Andreas the more you guys kind of convinced me that, that there was a story because it is unusual what I've done I mean I haven't done it by design but I have somehow managed to carve out a career as a successful um, musician in the sense that I'm able to maintain a career, a fairly healthy lifestyle, um, a career doing exactly what I want to do with no compromise at all. I'm incapable of compromising re- on a broad, broader level. I'm really incapable of compromising anyway. I've been able to make a successful career doing exactly what I want to do by pretty much doing everything in the complete opposite way that you're supposed to, the way the industry tells you, you know, the prescribed method, have the hit single, you know, all that stuff, play pop music, be seen to be hanging out with the right people. I've not done any of that shit, you know. (laughs) I've done the complete opposite. I've played the most unfashionable kind of music, never really aligned myself with a genre that would have helped me have a leg up, never had hit singles, never had songs on the radio, and yet here I am. And I understood that I... There are some people out there that look at me and and are envious <laughs> somehow that I've managed to do this. Um, and that's that was a bizarre thing to acknowledge to myself, that there are people out there that, who are perhaps arguably more successful, quote-unquote, than me, who still envy where I am, because I don't really do anything that I don't want to do. Um, and, that, and that's supposed to be... Um, uh, you and I growing up there's some years between us but essentially that world we both grew up in where you bought LPs as they were you would read the music papers you, you know you understood the artists and who produced them and who wrote the songs and it was always that integrity that I think we we would have found most appealing as opposed to who's number one on top of the pops this week it would be who's put out the most stunning piece of work well is interesting that is you're absolutely right but i have to say i was interested in the other thing too uh because growing up i loved the charts and i loved the stories uh you know the rock and roll excess stories who who didn't who doesn't you know so the point is that i didn't have that side i didn't have the side the rock and roll excess i didn't have the stories of drugs religion groupies the rise and fall i didn't have that i didn't have the hit singles but i had all the other stuff and 
I think one of the first conversations you and I had about it when we were just talking about the the the, the possibility of doing it, we kind of we kind of had that discussion where we both agreed actually the kind of book that I thought people wanted is actually boring now because it's been written so many times. And that story is so ubiquitous, whether it's Guns and Roses, Led Zeppelin, Rod Stewart, who, you know, you name, you name it. It's pretty much the same story, isn't yeah, it? Always. When it comes down to it, if you reduced all of the stories of all of those bands and all the myriad of others, it's essentially the same, it's the same story and it's the same career arc. Um, and, and, and we're much more familiar with it. You know, back in the 80s, when a book like Hammer of the Gods came out, uh, or back in 2001, 2000, I think, 2001, when The Dirt by Motley Crue came out, mm. um, uh, and various books on the Stones and other people. But that world was not uh, clear in most people's minds. It was There were still certain shocking elements to it. Right didn't know that elements but now we've had the endless documentaries right the the internet is a great source of revelation yeah you know i found a clip the other the other day probably three years ago i found a god knows where it came from but a bizarre clip of bowie uh uh on the diamond dogs tour in america um at rehearsals going into a room with a big bag of cocaine and literally, like pulling it open, like a like a Christmas present, and sticking his face <laughs> in it before someone closed the door, like so Al Pacino it, in Scarface. Very much like that, you know. <laughs> but I mean, you could just you could just see stuff like that now all the time on the internet. Yeah. So that story, as you rightly say, has been told a million times. And it's a great story, but but it, it yes, it is the archetype now, isn't it? And I suppose that was my mistake in thinking that actually what people would want from a book about me would be that story again and and that's not my story so it was kind of coming to the conclusion that actually the story was inter- my story was interesting because it wasn't that and that it was a story about someone who believed completely in the magic of music still does dedicated their life to this idea of the music as the album as a journey as a musical journey being able to take people to somewhere magical across two sides of vinyl or cd or whatever it was and that was really what i I fell in love with all those years ago and so the book was really in the end for me became trying to understand that myself trying to understand how i've managed to become reasonably successful by not doing any of the things that you're supposed to do and not having a career like all these other rockers had. Um, And I hope that's what makes it interesting for other people too, because in a way, when you read those books about, you know, those rock and roll, rock and roll excess stories, they're very hard to relate to. I think that's part of what makes them appealing is that they seem, these people seem like extraterrestrials. They almost don't seem human. Um, That, notion of the rock star by design was they were untouchable you know you think the great 80s icons the princes the madonnas the michael jacks they're almost in they're almost like 
alien life forms. It's very hard to imagine them even doing normal, you know, things that the rest of us do. And that was part of the the artifice, was part of the magic. I I remember seeing a picture. I, I was a very big Bowie fanatic in my teen years. And I remember opening the NME one time and seeing a picture of him and Mick Ronson on the train going to France, probably to record the pinups album. And um they were they were in a in a in a on a train in a carriage and they had food in front of them. They were having a meal. Yeah. And I literally <laughs> David was, Bowie eats. I yeah. didn't realise Yeah. Because cause if he eats, that means he must go, go to, to the, the toilets. toilets. Yes, uh, and and uh, and other things previously yeah. unconsidered on my part. Uh, but isn't they it? Were, they were they were messianic figures. But isn't yeah. it funny that picture that picture that you've just described now that is de rigueur for for social media channels now, isn't it? All <laughs> pop stars post photos of themselves doing those things all the time now, right. and that's how. The notion of rock stardom has changed since the 70s and the 80s when the people were untouchable and they they kind of manipulated and controlled what Mm. the public could see with the complicity of of the music press, because that was really the only place you could see them, apart from the occasional Top of the Pops appearance. With the complicity of the media, they controlled what people saw of them. Now, people see everything. People see everything about their pop star. So the, that's why the modern pop star is someone like Ed Sheeran, for example, who you can imagine serving you in, you know, in do it all on a Sunday afternoon. There's, there's no sense of um, the unreal or the untouchable or the, you know, extraterrestrial about him at all. He is indeed simply one of us. So in a way, my story is a kind of, it spans, because I started in the late 80s, you know, um, it spans this period of time when the whole notion of what a pop star is has changed beyond all recognition. And I think that itself is a fascinating aspect, I like to think, to the book. Um, that I fell in love with this ideal of being a pop star. And of course, I arrive at this point now, we arrive at this point in 2022, where that notion simply doesn't exist anymore anyway. Or does it? You know, I I think maybe still people like Harry Styles have a little bit of that going on. But it's unusual now, isn't it, I think? Um, I I think even the Harry Styles or the Dua Lipa mm. or that sort of realm... Um, it, 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 it isn't how it would have been 20 years ago because there are still tons and tons of people that have no idea what the new Harry Styles song is or what it sounds like. I'm thinking of myself here. Even though my kids have jumped on it immediately and, and, and playing it back to back all the time, but there just isn't that... Even Even Ed Sheeran... I think is at a stage now where everybody's heard of him and we all know he's Ed Sheeran and all the rest of it. But it's hard to keep track on every little thing, isn't it? I, I don't know what his latest No, song I don't know is any or... of his I don't know. I, I know maybe a couple of songs if I heard them, I would recognise them. But you're right. But I think that's partly down to, you know, the, the complete fractalisation of, of, you know, media and the fact there are... Or compared to when we were growing up, you know, I mean, I am younger than you, but I still grew up in a time when there were still only four TV channels. There was really only a couple of radio stations that anybody listened to. And there were three or four music newspapers. And that was, that was it. it. 
that was your platform to promote yourself as a musician artist. You know, you go on Whistle Test, you go on Top of the Pops. That's about it. So now an artist can be huge without ever having any profile or infiltrating any of the places that I might experience them or be exposed to them. Um, they can be huge. They can be huge just on TikTok. Yeah. That is enough for you to be a massive, massive pop star to have a viral hit on TikTok. I don't go on TikTok. So there are pop stars who have basically broken through TikTok. I am completely ignorant of. I completely was told, ignorant of. Uh, recently, and I, I'm struggling to remember who told me this, but in the last couple of weeks, someone was telling me how um, uh, in America, um, I wish I could remember the particulars, but yeah, new signed artists. In the same way I imagine as in the 80s, it would be, okay, we need a video for MTV, you know. We're going to get right behind this. Because labels don't get right behind every artist they sign, but the ones are going to get behind, okay, we need a video, because this is going to break it, MTV. And they were saying right now with newer artists, uh, because the other thing about new artists now is if they don't immediately hit, they're gone. There's none of this give it three or four albums. Yeah. And they're saying, okay, TikTok. And this artist was saying, oh, I... I'm not TikTok. I'm a serious. They went, no, no, you are TikTok. Yeah. Because that, in the same way as you are radio, you are MTV, those things are gone now, really. Yeah. It's you have to do TikTok yes. or you're not in the game. Yes. You know, for new artists that don't know any better. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I do think that an artist like yourself, in many ways, is, is, is a pioneer, if you like, because. Um, what I like to think is that the fact that there's la this lack of ubiquity, this lack of uh, having to compete with the Madonna and the Prince and all this, hopefully will allow take a little bit of the pressure off in terms of doing the stuff you really want to do, as yeah. opposed to going, well, how do we beat Ed Sheeran in the charts this week? Or, yeah. <clears throat> excuse me. I, I don't know. I, I, I just, because clearly the, the, the fact that you weren't at number one in the singles chart uh, at these points in your career can only, I think, have been helpful in terms of developing you as an artist. A real yeah, artist. I mean, that's the thing. You know, I mean, I, I wasn't number one, neither was I 101 or 200. I mean, I was nowhere. You know, I was nowhere in terms of those kind of um, platforms, charts, chart shows, mainstream, you know, pop exposure. Never had any of that and was frustrated by that at the time. But now, of course, looking back, and as we do through the book, you know, looking back at my career, everything happens for a reason, as they say. And now I find myself in a position where, where as I say, some of these people that are on the surface, perhaps more successful than me, might look at me and envy me because I don't have to play the same games that perhaps they do. Um, you know, and we talk about this in the book also that my, I've cultivated this kind of relationship with my fans where they almost expect me to do the unexpected. And what a fortunate position to be in um, and what a rare situation to find myself in. So a lot of the book really was became about, and this is where I think the interest finally lay and where the kind of core of the book finally was found, explaining how somebody like myself, first of all, how I first engaged with music, what was it that first turned me on about music? 
What was it made me curious? What was it that made me follow the path? You know, and my favorite, one of my favorite chapters in the book is the book, is the chapter where we track how do you get from David Bowie's novelty single, The Laughing Gnome, to listening to Karl-Heinz Stockhausen in the space of 10 years, which is exactly what I did. <laughs> and the point is, it seems absurd to, 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 to sort of posit that as a, as a sort of, you know, a concept for a chapter. But when you read it, it actually does make sense. Yeah, the, 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 the trail does make sense. There is logic there. Um, and that's really how I've gone about my making of music as well. Not really recognising generic boundaries still to this day you know kind of doing my best to avoid being categorized as a generic artist never acknowledging that and the price you pay for that but the benefit you get from it in the long run well let let me ask you about the price you pay because yeah i think also i know in my own career people understandably but people by and large don't comprehend how hard sometimes you have to fight just just to make something that just makes enormous sense to you. You're not trying to piss anybody off or disappoint anybody, but you just know this is where the work is going because it's good. Um, I don't think people often comprehend the courage or the or, or bloody-mindedness the loneliness sometimes of actually saying, you know what, no, this is what I want to do. And I think that's where a lot of people buckle because it is, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, how many times, you know, were you told in Porcupine Tree, you're going to be the new Pink Floyd, this is the album that's going to break you. And then when you, when you left, you didn't make a song and dance of it, but you did leave. Um, and then as a solo artist, you've got people saying, well, why why is he doing this stuff when he, he he could be doing you know the raven or something a bit more prog or a bit more easily overlapping with porcupine tree i mean i don't think i think they mistake it for insouciance they think that you're just going well i don't care but you do care and it it's got to be hard i mean how, yeah i mean it keeps it, you going in the lonely hours do you think do you ever think to yourself oh shit i really should have done raven part two no 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 i never think that i never ever think that no i'm i'm arrogant enough to to always believe that i'm right and that everyone else is wrong <laughs> but i believe but i think that i think that's part of being a part of what without wishing to sound pretentious and pompous that's part of what being an artist is yeah. being being selfish being self-indulgent is in many ways um one of the defining factors of being able to call yourself an artist as distinct from, I mean, I've said many times over the years, you know, art, people think of artists and entertainers many, many, you know, most of the time they think of those being part of the same world. They're not, they could, no. they're complete opposites in some senses, in some senses, of course, there is an overlap, you know, there's no reason an artist can't be an entertainer, um, but, or entertain, but it's a byproduct. The art I believe, I've always believed the art has to be made in a vacuum and you have to make it to please yourself. And if I can't be excited about what I'm doing, then I can't do it. And the reason I say that is because I look at, naming no names, I look at a lot of other artists, some of whom I I admire 
and some of whom's music I, I like very much, I look at a lot of other artists and I see that at a certain point they've got stuck in this cycle of needing to please the people that have already become their fans, needing to, needing to keep those people on side, needing to keep giving those people the same thrill to diminishing returns, always to diminishing returns, because you can never give back the thrill that people got when they first walked into your world. That will always be the moment. That is why very often people's favourite artist, favourite album by an artist they love is the one they first fell in love with that artist because it's when something clicked in their mind, they walked through a door into a universe and suddenly it began to make sense to them and it resonated with them. And, and there's something about that that you can never, ever give that back to them again with any of your subsequent work. It's like your, you know, it's like your first kiss or the first time you have sex or whatever. It might not be the best sex you ever have, but there's something about it that you can never cap. Of course, you can never have that moment again. Right. And I think a lot of artists get stuck in a cycle of trying to give their fans more of the same, more of the same, and you can't. You can't ever satisfy that. You can never satisfy that appetite. Well, I think that there are also two, th- two, uh, two more things at play there, which are, um, uh, okay, you're the Rolling Stones. Now, the Rolling Stones have uh, explored other genres of music within their own songwriting and performance, but essentially they're the Rolling Stones. And Jagger did a couple <coughs> of solo albums where he definitely was hoping that this might be his passport out of that dilemma didn't work Keith Richards did a couple of solo albums the first one was great fun but again nothing compared to the Stones so I think it I think it is very hard I think of someone like Brian Ferry with Roxy Music you know he had a parallel solo career then he had a solo career then he got back together with Roxy and it became indivisible it was it's is it Roxy is it a Brian Ferry thing it's just all of those things but it's very much kind of along those same lines he always followed. Um, uh, at the same time, you know, you have the rest of the band, you have the crew, you have the managers, the PAs, the label, the promoters, you have all catering, you know, you have all these people on the payroll. Dependent, Completely. Dependent yes. on you yeah. to keep selling tickets. Yeah. And how do you keep selling tickets? Well, things are changing, but um, or have changed. But it used to be, well, you you have to have another hit. Yeah, I, I think I told you when we were doing the book. I remember sitting in A and R meetings in the late seventies, early eighties, and the bands I worked on were always album bands. I remember sit, sitting and they would argue to hell about having a hit single. I remember someone at a meeting once going, "Look, fellas, art for art's sake." hit singles for fuck's sake that's mm. the golden rule yeah um uh and so there was always tremendous i think there's always been tremendous pressure within the industry to force artists yeah to absolutely hit, you know. and, and, and 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 understandably so i understand why you know having a hit can if if your career goes in the way you'd like it to having a hit 
doesn't change your art, but it suddenly brings it to the attention of potentially a massive, massive, much bigger audience. That's the ideal. The reality is, of course, that having the hit turns you into a sausage machine where you have to keep then feeding feeding the troll, feeding more hits, more hits. Um, and that's been, you know, the problem with many acts that have got stuck in that cycle that started out as serious albums artists and then just got locked into a cycle where they had to, you know, keep having more hits and more hits and more hits. I think what's, and I've never had the hits, so that's one thing that I've been spared in a way. And, and I do, again, I talk about that in the book, how it's frustrating on one hand to have not had that opportunity of a big hit that could have created a shop window for everything I do. But at the same time, maybe it is the Faustian pact I'm happy that I didn't have to make. I've not had the hit. Therefore, I've not had to deal with all the bullshit, the other stuff that would have gone along with that. And I've been able to keep my integrity intact because of that. But but interesting, you said a minute ago that you remember the meetings where there was, was always this thing where the pressure was to, to create the next hit. Mm. I think the pressure now with a lot of older rock bands is not to have hits now because you can't. You can't. Rock no. bands can't have hits. The pressure is, as you pointed out, is... We need to get another album out so we can flog it to our hardcore fan base and keep everybody in it having an income. That, that is the reality now. We need to make another album so we can sell 25,000 copies or 50,000 copies or 10,000 copies, whatever, whatever the fan base is. We need to get another record out the door. It can just be more of the same stuff. that yeah. they, Those guys already like that stuff. They'll be happy for just to give us more, more of the same stuff that they already like. We'll sell 25, 30,000 records. We'll go into the top 10 in the first week and then we'll be dropping like a stone the following week. This is, I'm describing my career too here. But, um, and then, but we'll, we'll make, you know, a couple of hundred grand out of it and that'll keep us going for the next three years until the next time we need to get together to somehow grind out another album, even though we're not particularly inspired. But hey, this is our job. This is our job. This is our job, and I, 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 uh, yeah. I never, until I got in the business, and even then, not for some years, saw it as a job. But it, it is a job. It's a job in so many ways now. But I think that that, that as I say, my, the hope I cling to is that it will encourage all of us, whether we're writers or musicians or, or all these things, and more to do better work because the level of expectation or the uh, I mean obviously once you like you just said once you're up and running then that's a different that can be a different game altogether but you know I look at what you've done and um, you really uh, I was going to say reinvent you don't reinvent yourself every time but you definitely don't go into it thinking well, you know, we, we got a very good reaction to the last one, so we need to kind of do that, but maybe just a little bit better this time. It, you don't think like that. You just do what comes out of you. No, I don't. I think part of me thinks in a different kind of way, which is, uh, well, that was really good, and that went really well. Um, now, what can I do that's different now, next time? Because, you know, that was really good, and in a way I can't better that, so let's try and do something completely different. You know, that's my way of thinking. Um, and partly it's also just because I guess I'm quite 
easily bored and I don't want to I don't want to make the same record. I don't the more of the same thing I've never understood you know it, it doesn't appeal to me and even this new Porcupine Tree album although it sounds quintessentially like Porcupine Tree it also sounds quite different and it's it's not more of the same and we wouldn't be releasing it if it was more of the same um and the you know the fact that we've disappeared for 12 years and come back with a record now we didn't have to we did not have to. We don't need the money. We've all got... Success. I mean, Gavin's very successful going off with King Crimson. Richard's got a very successful career doing his solo stuff. I have my solo career. None of us needed to do this. We didn't need to, quote-unquote, grind out another Porcupine Tree album. We really didn't. So you can trust in the fact that we are releasing this album because we actually really believe it's something special. Um, and we believe it's right up there with the very best work we've ever done. Um, and we're also saying, you know what? This might be the last one. We might never bother making another one. Not bother. Bother's the wrong word. We might never feel inclined to make another record. And even the title is a kind of meta play on the whole notion of, is this the last record or is it the beginning? Give us the title. Closure Continuation. And we don't know. It's closure slash continuation. And there is an implied question mark. We don't know. We really don't. And, it, you know, we might make another record. We might not. If we can do, if we feel we can do something that would be different creatively, there would be a reason. I think this is it for me. I always ask myself this question. What is the purpose if I'm about to make a new record, if I'm about to release a new record, record, write, release, whatever it is, what is the purpose of adding this to my already vast catalogue? What justifies adding this to the already mountainous pile of Stephen Wilson-related <laughs> albums? And that is because I am slowing down a bit. I mean, the, in my early years, I was releasing two or three albums a year, you know, the first with different projects, Blackfield, No Man, Porcupine Tree, whatever. I'm slowing down now because I'm asking myself that question and I'm, I'm being more rigorous with myself in, in answering that question. Is there a reason to toss this album, you know, onto the already, you know, overflowing pile of Steve, Stephen Wilson records? And if I can say yes, this is really unlike anything else I've done and it will confront the expectations of my fans, hopefully in a good way. Some of them will get it, some of them won't. You, t you asked me the question, you said, what about this price you have to pay? The price you have to pay is you will lose fans along right. the way. Right. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. And you have to acknowledge that. And they will tell you, and this is the bit you have to turn a blind eye to if you're going to be able to function without losing your mind. They will tell you that when you release this album that they didn't like, 
they will tell you you've made a mistake. Yeah. You've done a bad record because I don't like it. And it's not the record I wanted you to make. Therefore, you've made a mistake. You need to sort yourself out and make a record I like next time around. It becomes very personal. Very personal, yeah. Yeah, I liked Wilson, you know, until he went all poncy. Yeah. uh, 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 I don't know if anybody's ever said that. Well, they've they've said, I've seen them say things, I mean, I try and avoid social media, but I've seen things like, oh, Stigmas, he wants to be David Bowie suddenly now, or he's gone pop, or he's gone electronic. All of these things meant in a very negative way. I take them all as a positive, of course, you know. Of course. Because my whole philosophy is if you're upsetting people like that, then it means you have reinvented yourself and you have confronted them. But... That's the bit you have to. That's the bit you have to ignore, the the bit that where people are telling you you've done something wrong, you've done something bad, you've made bad art because they don't like it. I'm old enough and wise enough now to know, even though that stuff, I'm not immune to that stuff. Still, if I hear that stuff, it's still upsetting yeah. because it's not a pleasant thing to know that you've put your heart and soul into something, and somebody that previously loved what you did is telling you they don't get this new thing at all. I'm not interested. And not only that, but questioning your whole uh, motivation or your whole reason to be, you know, why, why, why did you make this? Are you, are you stupid? Yes. Or you're arrogant? Or, or you just want to be a pop star now? Yeah. Where's your integrity gone? Yeah. And, you know, and I've had that too. And obviously the people that would say that, I can't honestly believe they've listened very hard or engaged with the, <laughs> the music particularly. But... Um, and also, it, it, it occurs to me that if people are saying that, then they don't know me very well, you know, because I started out totally in love with the whole notion of being pop, being part of the pop world and being a pop star and all that stuff. I love that. I still love that, by the way. I still love that. Um, I'm not immune to that still to this day. Um, so there is a kind of inherent paradox going on with me all the time. You know, yeah, I want to be a pop star. Yeah, you know what? But I don't want to compromise either. And... It's fair to say there are very, very, very few people in the history of pop that have pulled off that particular tightrope walk. Bowie is the poster child, I think, for... And the Beatles, you know. I mean, the Beatles and and Bowie are the poster children for how to be massively successful, but essentially be art school, you know, self-indulgent. This is what I want to do. Not many people have pulled off that trick. You can count them on probably both hands. I think also, um, imagine if you had, if one of your tracks had been a big hit, I'll pull a number out of the hat, say back in 2014 or 2015, um, there's, now a, there's now a sort of an obligation to perform that at every show. I'm not saying you would succumb to that, but there would be a great, feeling of uh if you don't do it it will be commented on and if you do do it it will be commented on i interviewed for a newspaper article a few weeks ago i interviewed right said fred right and um they were telling me that they still love singing i'm too sexy right they did have other hits but that's the one that's the only one people really remember yeah um and that they still get a buzz out of the reaction they get when they start to play it. Um, and I imagine it is a big moment, probably the big, definitely I would have thought, the biggest moment in their show. Nevertheless, yeah, 
you've still they've still got to do that otherwise it's probably even in the contract you know you, you've got to do that I think there, I would there, find yeah uh, I think I would find that deeply deeply depressing if I know myself and I'm not no no disrespect of right said Fred you know they they don't find it but I personally would find it depressing I think to me there's nothing more depressing when a band um they get on TV and they're kind of a legacy band. Maybe they had a big hits 30, 40 years ago. And I'm naming no names here. They get a spot on a big mainstream TV show and they have to play their hit from 40 years ago. And I think I would find that because that, you know, that that was stipulation for that was stipulating the contract. Absolutely. We yes, we'll have you on at Super Bowl. Yes, we'll have you on at the Eurovision interval. Yes, we'll have you as on. As long as you do. Yes, we'll have you on a Good Morning Britain. What but you have to do the hit you had 40 years ago because that, by the way, that's the only thing anyone knows about you or remembers about you. What was the name of the guy who had uh, um, Werewolves of London? Warren, Warren Zavon. Zavon. Yeah, right. yeah. Um, Apparently, he just hated that song by the end. But if ever he was on a talk show or guest appearance anywhere, they that was the only song they wanted him yeah. to. Even though, I mean, I don't yeah. know, you, you, you probably do know, I don't know, but that album that track came from, there's some fantastic tracks on that and, and many other great Zivon albums, you know. But that was it. Play us Werewolves of London. Play there it. Are, play it. Imagine being one of my favourite bands, and I just worked with them on their last record, which is a fantastic record, Tears for Fears. Imagine being Tears for Fears. Imagine you get the request to go on, I don't know what the latest talk shows are in, in, in America now, but imagine you get invited on to... to one of the big talk shows. Yeah. You know perfectly well they're going to say, can we have the band on? so they can play Everybody Wants to Rule the World. And I can imagine how annoyed Roland that would make Roland, because I know Roland enough to know that that must piss him off. But that's the reality, I think, for a lot of, a lot of acts, from legacy acts from the past now. Getting people to have any interest at all in what you're doing now mm. is so hard. And it's even harder if you've got these incredible legendary songs from your from your past i don't have those so at least there's a silver lining to the fact i don't have those it's a little bit a little bit easier to get people to focus on what i'm doing doing right now uh, and what porcupine tree are doing right now yeah and and also it does position you amongst the most interesting artists i mean i think of lou reed you know uh I mean, he, he just got double whammied every time. I mean, there's the Velvet Underground who no one was interested in when they were together. They didn't sell anything. And then for the rest of his career, he's told me, you're not as good as well, you were in the Velvet Underground. Well, this is, this is an interesting analogy with me and Porcupine Tree Absolutely. then. Absolutely. Yeah, because Porcupine Tree, to me, it was always felt like a struggle. And the moment we stopped, and the moment I started my solo career, which was considerably more successful than Porcupine Tree during the... Not now, because Porcupine Tree have kind of leapfrog leapfrog everything with this new record. Um, But it was 10 years of fielding questions about Porcupine Tree, essentially. 
uh, a band that nobody seemed interested in at the time we were actually out there playing. I'm exaggerating, but but it it's felt like a struggle. So the interesting parallel there, yeah, absolutely with with with. Well, well let, let's. The, the book is called Limited Edition of One. There are uh, there's a special edition. I think is if it's out now or roundabout. Yeah, it's come out now. Yes, yeah. Um, Slightly belated due to printing. Yeah. Issues. Um, uh, so you can get it in all the usual places. Uh, I have done. I've worked on many, many, many books, um, mostly on my own, but very often with artists. And by far, by far, the most interesting collaboration I've ever worked on, um, and that is uh, down to Stephen, and also the fact that you know he really is a writer. He really has a voice, and you were as involved in this. Uh, I was going to say, as any artist, I've worked a million times more than any other artist I've worked with. So it felt to me more like a collab. And um, uh, and so, yeah, I'm very proud of the book. And I learned a lot about you and your career through well, working with you. Well, so did I. <laughs> no, seriously, so did I. I mean, I learned so much. You know, I, I think I even say in the intro to the book or, or you know, certainly in the press release that the book was an opportunity for me to understand it myself mm. because I didn't really, I don't think I really did understand it, but you, you've been very kind. You've said that I've heard you say that before and, and that's amazing to me. Um, and it does make me wonder how these other people write their books. Cause to me, it only seems logical that I would have been involved in writing <laughs> well, my book, you know, but some, uh, some of them not at all. Okay. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, some of them say, look, you know, I'm not even going to read this. Like, that's okay. That blows my mind. It yeah. blows my mind. Yeah. Uh, they, they always end up reading it. Right. But, but right. from the get-go, it's a kind of, uh, you know, I'm paying you, so you do it. But but that's the book. Do get yeah. it. You won't you won't read a more interesting... It's very entertaining, memoir. isn't it? I, th- I think even though I say something, it's quite entertaining, isn't it? it? It's... Yeah, it, it, it's everything yeah. we discussed in the sense that it's thematic. Yeah, it's not um, uh, A to B to C to D. No, um, lots of surprises, and you're very honest. I think honesty is is always the most remarkable quality because people always know when you're being honest. They 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 see it, they get it, and it engages them. Um, uh, I was going to finish on the book and go on to Porcupine Tree, but before we do, to also mention, you've got a short story in the book. Yes. And so, kind of a two-part question, because um, I know you've done other writing. Yeah. These short stories that you've written, because there's some also in the uh, companion edition right. that you can now get. Yes. Um, a, will there be more of those? whether it's short stories or poems or ruminations, whatever it might be. And um, will there be any more Stephen Wilson books? Well, I don't, I mean, I really enjoyed doing the short story um, for the book. Um, I haven't done a lot. Um, I think I'm, I'm wary of spreading myself too thinly. Um, part of me sort of says to myself one day, you know, maybe in another 10 years, you might stop touring and you might be a little bit less prolific in terms of making music. That might be the time to sit down and try and write a whole book of short stories. I found it incredibly rewarding to write that story, but incredibly hard in a good way. 
hard in a way that I think it's hard to do something. Um, it's easy to do something that's okay, isn't it? It's the same with music. It's very easy to make okay music and it's very easy to make generic music. In fact, the world is full of it. The world, most music is okay. You know, you wouldn't turn it off. It's okay. It sounds like a load of other stuff you've heard. It's very generic. It's very hard to make something special. And I wanted that story to be special. And I did a lot of revisions. I took a lot of time over it and I honed it and I, and I honed the language until I was absolutely happy with every single sentence and I'm proud of everything in it. Um, so it's not something I would just knock off. Um, it's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah. I would want to commit myself, you know, perhaps for a whole year to writing a set of short stories. And yes, I would love to do that one day. Um, we've talked if, about tour diaries. We've mm. talked about lyric books. Yeah. Would you ever consider, note the segue here. Yeah. Would you ever consider doing the story of Porcupine Tree? Well, obviously quite a lot of that is in the book anyway. Although we we very early on decided, didn't we, to rather than try to tell the, the story in a linear way, we decided to pick kind of inspired by the Dylan Chronicles book in this way, to pick three very specific points in time and try to tell the story through those three three moments. If you, I mean, they're more than moments. But oh, no, you, you're absolutely yeah. right. I'm, I'm just imagining yeah. uh, more of a band book, if you like, where you'd have the voices of, uh, you know, some of the other people who have been in the group or worked with the group or... Whether it's possibly other or managers or labels or possibly yeah i don't know you know i mean i know i know i said this about this book when we first started talking <laughs> about i don't imagine it would be imagine it would be a very interesting book because i imagine most of the people that have worked with us would say the same thing yeah very professional um yeah makes a lot of music um very private person because those are all things I've heard about myself. You know, I mean, the funny thing is for years and years and years and years, people knew nothing about my private life, literally nothing. And then started when I got married to my wife, Rotem now. She's brought me out a little bit and I posted wedding pictures and, and, and pictures of some pictures of my stepdaughters. People only really began to know anything about my private life starting about two and three years ago. And of course, there's a lot more of that in the book. Um, and as you say, I've been quite honest. I kind of resign myself to the fact: if I'm going to do this, let's not be coy. Let's no. let let's just go the complete opposite direction. Because I've always been incredibly private to the point that I think for many years people thought I might even be gay. You know, because they knew nothing about my. I did actually have a partner for many years, but she was a very private person too, so they knew nothing about her. A lot of people sort of think thought I was gay, maybe, or I'd chosen to, you know, to have this very monastic lifestyle. It wasn't the case at all, but I just didn't feel like it was relevant, although I wanted to talk about it. So in the book, it's like going complete opposite direction. So I wonder about Porcupine Tree, because we're all like that. <laughs> Richard and Gavin are a bit like that, too. So... Um, we're not terribly exciting, you know, from that, I imagine, from that perspective. Well, again, you know... But I might be what, wrong. What, what, yeah. what ex exciting, you know... I know, Does yeah. it have to be exciting? Or does Maybe it not. Interesting. interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. All right, so... I'm sure there's a way. On to, on yes. to uh, Porcupine Tree, the yes. album. 
which will be out uh, the very week that we put this podcast out. So no doubt uh, your fans will already be... Uh, already have heard it and already be complaining about it on social media. <laughs> it's not you what know, we wanted. Yeah, You know where he went wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What he could have done better. Yeah, yeah. And where's the bass player? That's something I think I've already read. Um, the bass player is me on this record. I know. As indeed it was on quite a few previous Porcupine Tree albums. But anyway... No, no, not <laughs> before Colin. The ones I'm talking about before Colin I joined. I how the, it actually yeah. begins with the bass. As yeah. Well, that chunky. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's oh, me, yeah. yeah. But I was the bass player on the first few albums because it, Colin didn't join until through. So people forget that I started out as the bass player in Porcupine Tree. So all the time we were working on the book, and, and we, we we literally began within days of the first lockdown in 2020, because both of us had our years wiped out overnight, as as did yeah. everybody, um, and we did it all via Zoom and so on and so on, and we kind of got to the end of it about eighteen months later, just as uh, before Christmas last year. Uh, it, I, I can't actually remember when we finished, even, but sort of end of last year, beginning of this year, with revisions and stuff, um, and in that whole time. I never mentioned. In that whole time, no, I know. you never once mentioned that no. you were working on Porcupine Tree stuff. And in fact, we were, we were. this is not to chastise you, I just I just find it, um, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, as we were talking for the book about Porcupine Tree and various decisions, from the very beginning, right up to the very end. It was always in the past tense, wasn't it? And yeah. this whole thing of, you know, this kind of endless, like you would always say, they're bigger now. Yeah, trail bigger now than we were when we yeah. were together. Yeah, so fascinating for me to then learn at the very end of the book. Yeah, that in fact you'd be making some music with the guys. Cue cue drastic last minute additional chapter. <laughs> A little bit, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You forgive me for that, Mick. Thank you. Um, the 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 simple reason, the simple thing is that nobody knew. Nobody knew, and we we didn't know ourselves if we were ever going to get to the point where we felt we had something that we wanted to bring to the wider bring to wider attention. It was quite feasible that we might have, after the ten years, said, "You know what." this material does feel a bit like more of the same. We've not really moved on. There's nothing fresh about what we've done here. Let's just keep it in the can and, and leave it to rest. And that was a conversation we had many times over the years when we were working on the material, but we thought, oh, let's just keep working. And it was only comparatively recently that we decided we had got something really special and we did feel it was worth... Um, liberating into the wider world and for a very deliberate reason until we reached that decision we didn't tell anyone and it wasn't just you Mick the management didn't know no record companies knew we hadn't taken any advances we hadn't taken any we hadn't agreed signed any contracts to make an album and that's the way we liked it because it meant we could make this music with no pressure no expectation, no weight of expectation, no deadline 
and as you see, it took us 12 years to release this record, even though we started working on it 10 years ago. Very, you know, Really? That casual. far back? Yeah. The first jams I had with Gavin were, were way back in 2012, 2013, and me playing bass and him on drums. And one of the reasons I played bass on the record is that it wasn't a conscious decision. It was just I went around to Gavin's one day for a cup of tea, and he said, should we have a jam? I said, Sure. I haven't got any guitars, Gav. So, no, I don't have any guitars. I've got bass, though. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll jam on that then. And that very first jam, we got that first groove, Harridan groove, and we got the basis of a track called Chimera's Wreck, which finishes the record, with me on bass. And from that point on, it's like, oh, okay, well, whatever we end up doing here, at least seems like I'm the bass player. <laughs> um, so it, it all happened in a very casual, off-the-cuff we have no... When did Richard... So Richard... I think we got Richard involved a couple of years later. We By that time, me and Gavin had jammed a few... And I think there was even at one stage... And as, as I say this in the book, there was one stage I said to Gavin, you know what, Gav, maybe we've got something new here. Um, maybe you and I should do a project and give it a new name, you know. And he looked at me for a minute and he said, nah, this is Porcupine Tree. And he was absolutely right because it sounded like Porcupine Tree. It had the Porcupine Tree DNA. Even though it was different, it sounded like Porcupine Tree. I don't know how else to characterise it. So at that point, we got Richard involved. Like Richard started adding all his, you know, magical kind of textural stuff and sound design. And it started to sound even more like, okay, this has to be Porcupine Tree record, even though it sounds fresh, it sounds different. But we weren't sure because we only had a couple of tracks at that point. So... I was making records, Gavin was off with King Crimson, Richard was making records. So we find like a week or two every year, every two years, we like find a fortnight where we would write something else and sort of began to develop it. And it was only in lockdown again that we actually found the time, myself and Gavin both had tours cancelled, we found the time to actually knuckle down and listen to the material we had and figure out that actually there might be something here that would be worth releasing under the name. It wouldn't shame the brand. <laughs> In fact, quite the contrary, it, it would make a beautiful way to close the story with one of the strongest records we've ever made. Certainly we feel it's one of the top two or three records we've ever made. And wouldn't that be a much better way to close the story than the way we left it kind of up in the air? But then we thought, well, why close the door anyway? You know, we didn't do that last time around. Why do it this time? So that's why the record is called Closure Continuation. We don't know. And we're not we're not prepared to say one way or the other, even to ourselves. Well, you don't have to. Don't it, have it, it to. It would be a shame to, to make a statement one way or the other. Exactly. It's unnecessary. And, and, it, and it pushes the focus onto things that have nothing to do with the music. Yeah. The fact is, Porcupine Tree have made a new record, and um, I guess I guess what I would ask uh, once once it was a thing where you had all the material, you decided you're going to put it out. Um, have there been? There must have been meetings where your manager or the people you're putting the record out, or promoters, have said, "Okay, this is." Okay, this is a great opportunity yeah. to go out and do, uh, I don't know, if I was in that meeting six months ago, I'd be going, okay, next summer, the COVID thing will have, there'll be everybody trying to tour, but the COVID thing won't be such an obstacle. Why don't we get some festivals? Why don't we do some yeah. 
you know the the Enormo Dome Arena in London, whichever one. Yeah. So talk us talk us through that. So all that happened. Yeah. So in August last year, we finally told somebody else. You know, we told our management, and they started talking to record companies. And you're absolutely right. I think certainly, I think myself and Gavin were secretly thinking, wouldn't it be nice to just put this record out, low profile, not have to, maybe just do a couple of shows. It was never going to happen. It was never going to happen like that. And and I think, and I realised that was so foolish of us to even think that was even possible. But we've reached a compromise. So we've signed with quite a big label to put the record out. Sony putting the record out. They're very excited. And we've said to the agent, we've said to our agent, we'll do some shows. So we're doing about 10 or 12 in Europe and about 10 or 12 in America, in in, uh, North and South America. And that's probably going to be it. Possibly forever, but I'm not saying definitively. And that's kind of it. So it's not the way it would have been 12 years ago doing the 30 shows in Europe the 30 shows in America and then doing a second leg and a second one not going to do that anymore so and what's been nice about coming back after all this time is the legend has grown enough for us to be able to do bigger rooms and to be a little bit more forthright in what we do and don't want to do um so there are advantages to to being this legendary group now. We can call the shots a bit more, but all of this would be worthless and to nothing if we didn't if I didn't think the album was as good as anything we've ever done. And I think it is. And what's been nice is getting the feedback from so far journalists that we've been interviewed by. Everyone seems to feel the same mm. that this is one of the best records we've ever made and how many times can you say that about a band that are supposedly making a comeback? <laughs> Very rarely. Um, it, it, it's not a comeback, though, is it, for you? It's not really a comeback, particularly as we've been working on this. Re- in a sense, there's been continuity. Uh, we we stopped touring in 2010. We pretty much picked up the writing process within a couple of years of that. So there is there has been continuity. Is that known that you guys... Have, yeah. Oh, it is known. Yeah, so yeah. it's not going to come as a huge... No, 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 no. This is one of the first questions everyone asks in the, in the interviews is, you know... When did you start working on this record? Well, actually, we started working on it about... But what I mean is it wasn't known <coughs> through those years that no. you guys would get together. Oh, absolutely not. No. So this is a big surprise to everybody. Yeah. yeah. No, like I say to you, the management didn't know. No record companies knew. Nobody knew. Did anybody go in management and stuff? Did anybody go, like, Eureka? Yes. Or uh, I th- Not literally, but I think, not you know... You looking. I think everyone was very excited about what could be done with um, a new Porcupine Tree record, including ourselves, because, as I say, you know, and again, I write about this book in the book, I was aware that in this period when we apparently had disappeared, that the legend had grown to almost mythical proportions. Um, frustratingly so sometimes. Why? Where were you when we were, you know, all that stuff, you know. Uh, And why are we talking about this now that I'm on a solo career? Thank you very much. And it kept on growing and growing and growing and growing. And to the point that we have come back now into a world where Porcupine Tree now can play venues that are three times the size of the venues we were playing the last time we toured. 
which is crazy. Now maybe it's just a maybe it's just a novelty of the fact we maybe if we tried to tour again in a year from now we'd be back where we start. You know, do you know what I mean? I don't know. And how many times have we seen that with comebacks as well? But you're right. This is not a comeback in the traditional sense. This is not a band that all fell out with each other, all vowed they would never work together again literally didn't pick up their instruments for 20 years and then tried to get back to, together to quote-unquote capture some of the old magic because when does that work? It doesn't. Uh, we've all been active. We've all been doing our own thing, never stopped working. We've all been f- friendly with each other. We've all been writing together sporadically. Um, so in that sense, it's not your normal rock and roll comeback story at all. It's just, I think... You know, in a way, this all comes back to the beginning of our conversation. Isn't it nice to be able to make music without having to think in any way in careerist terms? In, you know, just, we just made this music because we felt sort of attracted to, to, you know, work together again. Um... But we didn't want any pressure on ourselves and we, we, we didn't want to commit to having to make an album. We didn't want to do any of that because we wanted to make the music in a vacuum and we wanted to make it for the right reasons and we wanted to be excited about it ourselves before we tried to get anybody else excited about it because we knew people would be excited about it anyway just because of the notion of there being a new Porcupine Tree album. So the reality is that we could have delivered quite a substandard record and yeah. people would have been excited anyway. That's not the way we work. It had to be as good as anything we've done for us to even own up to the fact that we'd done it. And it was only when we felt like we were ready to cross that Rubicon that we did it. So that's when we started to tell other people, we've made this record and you know what? It's really good. They weren't actually interested in the second half of that statement. They were interested. <laughs> no, I'm exaggerating. Actually, that's not fair. Record companies and management, of course, they do care that the quality. But the well, main thing. the next question. Yeah. yeah but the, the, we've made a new record was the important thing to them. The important thing to us was we've made a new record and it's as good as anything we've ever done. Otherwise, we wouldn't have made the record. So that for me is the crux here. And that's why I don't think of this as. You know, again, I talk in the book about how for years in interviews, I would say going back to Pokemon Tree would be a backward step for me. And this is all the while, while I knew that actually we were working on music. So it was a bit of a white lie, but it was to try and get people to focus on what I was doing at that moment, that moment. And I, and so I feel justified in having told those white lies, focus on what I'm doing now. But part of me also still feels there's a little part of me. Again, I say this in the book, a little part of me feels just a little corner of me feels disappointed in myself for going back to it. Um, because obviously there is the part of me that thinks, are you are you giving people, for the first time in a long time, are you actually just giving people what they want from you rather than what you really artistically want to do? And I think the answer to that question is, if I didn't have my solo career now, I would feel that possibly is, is the case. But the fact that my solo career is very established now and can run in parallel with something like a new Porcupine Tree record makes me feel like I can, quote-unquote, go back 
to doing something more akin to what people associate with my past and what they like about my past. Um, because I know I've already written my next solo record as well. Well, you mentioned before we began today that uh, you've already written the material for... Which is, the album is called The Harmony Codex, and it's based on the story really? in the book. Yeah. See, I, I you didn't I even did know that. No, no. Yeah. I'm always finding stuff out. Yeah. Wow. So it's based on the short story that's in the book? Loosely, yeah. I mean, the, there are songs on the album that won't be related to the story, but the, the album will be called The Harmony Codex, the artwork. It's so the, the there's a quite a long piece in the middle of the record, 10-minute piece, which is called The Harmony Codex and features dialogue from the story spoken um, by my wife, in this case. Uh, and... Uh, it's definitely been a starting point for me. You know, I love to, you know, again, you and I have talked about this. I love to to have a have a sort of a central conceit to every record I yeah, make. Yeah. And it helps me to think in album terms. So this time around it was I'm really proud of that short story. That could make a good I could make a good movie. You know what? It could also make a great kind of concept record. So I started out from that point of view. Of let's write songs based on these characters and this story and this kind of arc that the characters go through. And and that's that's the record I've just finished writing. Uh, and again, it's very different again. Well, I was going to say, uh, you mentioned earlier, and you mentioned in the book, uh, how when you've, uh, you know, you, whatever project you've just completed when you be begin another a new project the next project um quite often your thought is uh how can i make this different yes when you were making when you were writing this new material were you thinking how can i make this different to my last solo album or how can i make this different to the porcupine tree album or well everything everything how can i make this different to everything i've ever done is the is the answer to the question. The the record the, the the best way I can characterize the record, and it's 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 obviously it's a gross simplification, it's it's more complicated than this, but it's keeping the kind of musical sound and musical vocabulary of the future bites more electronic, but heading back into more conceptual territory, longer tracks, less of a pop sensibility. Um, that's an incredibly simple way of, of kind of explaining it. Yeah. Um, there are three tracks on the record that are over 10 minutes long, but it's not progressive rock. I don't even think it's rock. Well, some of it is and some of it isn't. So I know that doesn't really help at all, but, but why should I have to explain it anyway? You know, but I'm trying to anyway, as you can see. It, it's, it's definitely gone into a more kind of conceptual, um, indulgent territory but I'm still keeping a sense of continuity from the sound of the future bites, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But also expanding it out a little bit more. Uh, there's even a spiritual jazz track on there. Oh, I like uh, that spiritual jazz. Well, it's a mashup. It's spiritual jazz and electronic music and progressive rock and all kind of mixed up together in this one long track. It's got glitch, glitch electronic stuff in it. It's got. It, it's listen for me one of the things i feel really i have the right to say now is i've created a, a musical world that i hope people will recognize as my musical world it's a stephen wilson musical world and i think i've earned the right now to to say 
I make music which sounds only like me. I, I this this is what I want to take away from my career. Um, and this is what I say about people like Kate Bush and Frank Zappa and David Bowie and all the people I look up to and admire. I say, what what's the one thing they all have in common? Mark Hollis, talk talk. What's the one thing they all have in common? They created their own musical universe and you can't put them in a genre. Where'd you put Talk Talk? Where'd you put Kate Bush? Where'd you put Frank Zappa? Where'd you put David Bowie? I mean, I know some people try and say David Bowie is glam, but seriously? Seriously? People that don't know. Exactly. The people only know one record. That's like the people that call you the king of prog. Yeah, they only know a few of my records. Now, those records have been the most high profile and successful, yes, but the people that actually know my whole catalogue from bass communion through no man through you know whatever it is i've done they know that they all these records sound like me but they're all all over the place and i think that's that's something you have to earn over a career yeah you have to earn that almost by wrong footing people um and i like to think i've got to that point in my career now even though for, for some people forever i will be progressive rock i guess but um you know, and I probably don't do anything to dissuade people of that notion because there is a lot of that still in the music, but there's also all these all these other things too. Clearly, all right. Uh, to 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 finish up, um, have you begun rehearsals? And uh, whether you have or you haven't, um, can we expect? You know that level of visual engagement that 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 we come to expect from your shows but also i mean i remember that final show in london from porcupine tree and the visuals were stunning okay so yes more along those lines my my solo show has tended to take that one step even further mm. um the bat the, the we are a collective obviously i think the other guys are less interested in that side of things than i am so quite understandably they feel like this is because this is the first time we played together in 12 years people will be coming along to see us play which is absolutely fair comment and i totally acknowledge that so all my ideas to have screens you can't even see the band screens in front which is all things i've done on my solo tours i mean i played a lot of my solo tours behind a transparent gauze and had visuals and you know all that stuff so quite understandably they feel like that Porcupine Tree should be more about it should be more about them people coming to the show and seeing us play. So there'll still be some spectacular visuals, absolutely. I mean, listen, we've got a big canvas to fill now. Yeah. We're playing big shows, big rooms. So we have to we have to scale the show up accordingly and the production accordingly. So yes, absolutely. But the show obviously will be about the music. We're going to play the whole of the new record. I I never understood these bands. Again, these bands that have been around for a while. They make a new record. They go to all this trouble to make a new record. And then they go out on the road and they play one song from their new record. <laughs> and the rest is stuff that they make. No, we're going to play the whole of the new record. Whole of the new record. And pick our favourite songs from our back catalogue. All the ones that we feel are, you know, the, the the songs that we we're most proud of. It's going to be a long show with an interval, and we've got a couple of spectacular guest musicians with us on the road, both American guys. So um, yeah, it's going to be a really fresh take on what people, some people remember, uh, and some people have never seen before. You know, remember a whole generation. It sounds never got to see us. Incredible. Uh, it doesn't sound to me like any of this is an ending or, a, or or you can even delineate it in any of those old fashioned terms it's a continuation um, yeah um and you know 
I think the other way of looking at it is it's all, even if this is the last Porcupine Tree record, it's part of a continuum of Stephen Wilson's work, Gavin Harrison's work, and Richard Barbieri's work. It's it's part of our each of our individual continuums of work, and of course my work includes many you know different projects all within that continuum. As does Richard's, as does Gavin's. So here is a record the three of us have got together and made as Porcupine Tree, that will now be a proud part of all of our discographies and catalogues. Cannot wait to see the show, Stephen. Thank you so much, so much for coming on the pod and making it uh, such a brilliant episode fascinating as always uh i hope maybe we can do a follow-up once once you guys are out there doing your stuff or uh sure you're ready to unveil the the next solo material i can't sure. wait to hear what that's like yeah i'm excited about that i mean i'm always excited at every point in this project you know i've when i've written the material um and to me, I always think it's the best thing I've ever done, you know, so that's always the caveat. When people say to me, oh, are you happy with your new material? I say, yes, yeah, the best thing I've ever done. The caveat there is I say that every <laughs> single time. But I am genuinely excited about it. And actually, I think some of the fans that maybe thought the last album was too pop, I think they might find this more appealing. But that's obviously that's not why I do it. But I'm just saying. <laughs> Stephen, absolutely brilliant. Thank Pleasure. you so much. Thank you. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. How do I stop this, Ferns?